Hello, it's part four of my Who's Round interview with Russell T. Davis. If you're one of those people that only tunes in for these ones and hasn't bothered with, say, Edward D'Souza or Brian Croucher or Margot Hayhoe, then I think you're an awful human being. Enjoy. talking about what the worst Doctor Who script uh, of all time is, and we're not going to tell you what it was, because that was private. Mm. Um, yeah, listen up, Pixley. You'd be shocked by the scene. It would. Mm. Um, so we, we left off on... We'd, we'd, we sort of went around about the houses talking about... Well, we jumped off at the Idiot's Lantern for a marvellous segue on my part. Um, <laughs> so... We, and you, you, but you were talking about writers being conversant in other science fiction. And yes. That was a very Nigel Neal... Esque uh, feel about it, and that comes from Mark, obviously. But the stuff, Nigel Neal, one of the things that Quatermass does very cleverly, I, I, I think, is it tells the story through the media. Um, mm. the, 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 the media go to Hobbs Lane and yeah. report it, and that's how it kicks off, and all that stuff. And that's a useful yes. way of showing world scale uh, calamity, but only by having a handful of people watch it on the television. Yes. Um, yes. And that's something. So is Neil somebody that you. you are unconsciously influenced by it or somebody that you actually admire? I, I do admire him enormously. I don't think I'm consciously influenced by him, except that's rubbish because anyone writing science fiction in the modern world in Britain is influenced by him. Um, I'm ama- I read a few years ago, I read The Road. Ah. What an amazing piece of work. Why doesn't someone remake that now? I mean, what a twist at the end. I'm terrified. It's absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Sex Olympics, he was ahead, so ahead of the game. It, to be honest, I know I use a lot of that... Um, you know, obviously, you might have noticed a lot of that sort of media reporting of events. I think in more the Truman Show. I think in my life, that's kind of a pivotal film. Have you seen the Truman Show recently? Um, I was talking to my son about it, but I haven't actually seen it. How ahead of its time oh, was it? It's like the world no. is becoming what it shows. It's, it's, it's. I mean, it was prescient at the time, but right on the right, sort of right on the button, zeitgeist-wise at the time. But it's continued to be. It stays that way. It, it's an astonishing film, um, and the way it tells those. Stories of like in a way you can never actually. I always remember saying on Doctor Who, every tone meeting I'd quote the Truman Show when when Earth was being attacked and we'd see lots of people. It's something very much a cinema camera can dwell on. It's very hard on a television schedule to pick up on the way that in the Truman Show it's that waitress in the bar. The bar was full of people, but your eye goes to one dumpy little waitress in the front who you love all the way through the film. You you love her relationship with Truman, and she hasn't got a line. She's just watching. It's very hard to do that on a, on a television. You need to lens up, you need to rehearse, you need to cast that actress proper, even with no lines in a film. You can't do that. I've never... Well, I bet someone can do that on television. I've never managed to achieve that, but I always used to quote it. Um, so, Nigel Neal, back to that. Um, yes, obviously, and, and when you're using someone like Mark on Vivian's Lantern, then you know Mark is steeped in Nigel Neal. We did never talk about that being a Nigel Neal-type story, but Mark brings that to it once you've got... No, it's not the most celebrated of stories, is it, when you're fond of I love it. I love them all. I really love them all because I really worked hard on them all. I mean that when I say that. It's I love it. It's and again, it's kind of like it's kind of one of those ordinary Doctor Who stories. That, that, you know, I think it's remembered quite casually, quite informally, with a bit of a smile, but maybe without much flag waving. 
and I maintained if Doctor Who had never come back and Mark had had one chance to bring it back on BBC One for one night and told a story about Queen Victoria's coronation where alien lightning became <laughs> Maureen Lipman who ended up battling with the Doctor on the tower of, of Valley Pally, that would be regarded as an all-time Doctor Who classic. Frankly, I've got to be blunt, and I mean this, too many classics. Too many good shows. You get given a classic now, and if it's just not quite classic enough... It gets slightly discounted and slightly disturbed, but I do think that's wrong, and I do think that we're the wrong generation, and that there are children growing up now will always remember the Doctor in his plimsolls fighting that electricity lady on that yeah. tower. You know, yeah, yeah, the faceless, classic, yeah, yeah, the facelessness, yeah, that's that's amazing. I love that sort of stuff. I'm really serious when I say that. I hope I don't care if it sounds arrogant. It's not coming from arrogance. I really believe these are excellent, excellent episodes, and if they're the only ones that existed, you'd love them. <laughs> just to think about one, I'd just like to salute Ron Cook, because he's mm. the sort of actor that should always have been in Doctor Who and never had been. Yes. And what a beautiful... And I love the Parker. fact that Sam Cox spends the whole thing going, it's colour television! <laughs> and he gets more and more incredulous yes. about the technology that he sees. I think I put those like <laughs> It's, it's colour television. It's that it's, it's all that. <laughs> oh, and talking of running jokes, we've missed out the Christmas invasion. Um, what? Which has my favourite running joke of all time. Which well, is, Harry yes, Jones Prime Minister. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then well, the, the dark. He has to translate it. <laughs> yes. And finally, the final time she says it is with the Daleks. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we know. <laughs> How cheeky was that joke? Well, you've turned, you've put in that, you turn a joke then into a bit of very dark. It's a comedy. Yes, know? yes, yes, but yes. But yes. it's not a send-up at all because it's the moment of somebody's death. I mean, it's an interesting line you struggle with. That. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love with that. And uh, the cast we've getting by that. So Daniel Evans is in there. Like just you know, twenty lines is all. So Professor Llewellyn yes, is, it? is that lovely, his name? Lovely. Marvelous. You. I mean, Daniel doesn't do much television. He doesn't need to do it. He he's, loves his theatre life. And to get people in like that was brilliant. Christmas Day. Look. Talking about how we don't celebrate this enough because there's too much Doctor Who. Doctor Who's now on every Christmas Day and is like the pinnacle of the BBC on Christmas Day. That's impossible, isn't it? Um, Did we ever think that would happen? With robot Santas and then a joke about the, the joke about the General Belgrano at the end. And yes, like, absolutely. No, oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's like getting that getting that slot was brilliant. I, I love Christmas specials. I love Christmas full stop. I love Christmas television. And when they said, you know, array series one was working, what series two and three were commissioned together. And Christmas specials. So, in, fa- in effect, they were commissioning two Christmas specials at once. That was marvellous. That was truly, truly marvellous. And even then, you never quite know. I still think to this day, you, ne- you never quite guarantee it's going to go out on Christmas Day. We hoped and hoped and hoped for Christmas Day. Will it be Christmas Eve? Will it be Boxing Day? Will it be that funny Wednesday in the middle afterwards? And then we got the Christmas Day slot, and it's like, that's when you think, yes. We've done it. That's nice. I still love that. I still love it. Christmas is coming. I know we've got the, the 50th coming, but then it's Christmas. We'll have Doctor Who on Christmas Day. Brilliant. That's two Doctor Who's. I know, yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. A new Doctor Who on Christmas. That's brilliant, isn't it? <clears throat> now, the story that I have vivid memories of leaving a barbecue early in the sweltering sun and eating a tangle twister and sitting in front of the <laughs> scariest Doctor Who episode I'd seen in God knows how long, which was the impossible... Planet. Oh, was so, that scary? All oh, right. The, the the and I actually saw the clip first on Totally Doctor Who oh. with Gabriel Wolf terrifying Will <gasps> Thorpe. Turn around, turn around, turn Toby. around, Toby. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and just thinking, oh, I forgot. I was I was never really. I'm not sure I was there, but that scared of Doctor Who as a kid. I was fascinated. I was. I was really scared. I, I actually hid from the Cybermen in Tomb of the Cybermen. I was uh, hiding from Tomb of the Cybermen in terror as the Cyber Leader comes out because he had a brain in his head. 
absolute terror. Even well, before they found it in 1992, I was that was a lasting memory of my life. But yes, that's... So the impossible... I mean... I love that. Do you know, sometimes I think that's my favourite. I love that story. I don't have a favourite, but sometimes... It's not my favourite, but I think... I haven't watched these for years, and the past couple of months or so, I've been thinking, I must watch The Impossible Planet one day. It's been kind of rising to the front of my head, going, come on, come and have a look. See how it is, because I did love it. It's on a space base. It's scary. Mm. It's... And, and yeah, it's. Uh, but it went through a lot of metamorphosis because didn't it at one point have the Slidine in it? It did. It did. It did. It was. Yes, they were. The, yes, they they were the slaves of the human race. I think at that point were they? Yes, they were like the the Ood, the Slidine had become the slaves, but were conspiring against the humans. There was a lot. In that, yes, in that treatment, I was talking about that series two treatment I found the other day, and in that, I think it's called the Impossible Planet, and that no, it's called the Satan Pit. And that story says that there's murder in the base. It was one of those meant to be one of those stories where there was murder in the base and lies and treachery and bodies being hidden and and aliens versus humans. It was Slovene against humans and you know one of those sort of episode summaries that says you know the darkest parts of the human soul are being revealed, little knowing what lies beneath them. <laughs> and um, so that's what the base was sort of meant to be, and clearly it didn't work. And so we made them a bunch of nice people instead. Nice people were slaves though. Um, yeah, I love that stuff. And an enduring monster in the Ood, of, uh, you know, who, who... A friendly monster, yes. yes. It's always a worry with Doctor Who that our liberal sensibilities come to the front again, that aliens are monsters and that all foreigners want to invade. That's basically what Doctor Who is in danger of saying sometimes and works very well when it's saying that. So you kind of work hard on that and the Sarah Jane Adventures to get friendly aliens to get... I mean, the end of the world did that in episode two. There's the Mox of Balhoun, here's trees, here's, here's, mm-hmm. here's lovely, colourful things and... You all, you know, and here's here's a space pig. He's not actually a pig, but he looks like a monster, but actually he's harmless. You try and do that, but of course it's more than likely you're going to spend your prosthetic budget on a monster to scare people with, because that's part of the DNA of the show. It's hard. Well, you have your cake and eat it with the Ood, because Mm. they they get taken over. Yes. And so then you've got that beautiful, lovely Silas Carson voice of being very polite and saying, and we're going to kill you. Yes, and the beast, he's dishing up dinner, (laughs) and he goes, and the beast will rise from the pit. (laughs) More beans. It's black beans, isn't it? (laughs) Lovely. Nicely designed. Nice atmosphere in that. And um, I just watched, um, I just watched Upstairs Downstairs on ITV3, where um, Hannah Gordon's son dies. And uh, Lord Bellamy stands there and quotes that Moses and how could man die better than facing fearful odds of the ashes of his father and the temples of his gods, which is used. Some big blockbusters just used that. What was it? What book? Anyway, Iron Man 3 or one of those has just used that. And that just went straight in the script. I was like, well, there we go. That, and that becomes <laughs> Scooty when Scooty yes. dies. And um, Danny, Webb does, uh, Danny Webb does the the valediction to Scooty floating into a black hole and comes out with a bit of... Horatio, or whatever that is. Marvellous. Yeah, and now here's an interesting thing, because I, I, my, always, my sort of inner psychological take when I think about it, about Doctor Who, is that he makes us aspire to be better because he mm. shows us worlds and possibilities beyond the confines of our everyday lives. And he grabs the awkward kid and the spotty kid and the kid who doesn't quite, quite fit in and says that all of this stuff is nothing compared to the whole of time and space. Mm. So don't worry about this stuff. Look at life. Oh, Toby, I'd commissioned that script off you. Marvellous. But, but d- your doctor oh. loves us as well, which yes. is interesting. Yes. Which is in, in, in that he enjoys the beans on toast. Uh, and the doctor, mm. in, I'm thinking in Impossible Planet, he does this speech because we as humans go and we explore mm. and all of that sort of thing. So 
it's it's an interesting dynamic that he has because which must have been a path you decided to take because he could be lofty he could make us better by forcing us to be more like him yes but you actually quite like the dynamic and the ninth doctor he, he learns off us as well yes I think I think you have to again it's it's keep it's just if you have a lead character who was an alien who was always with humans. You've got to tell her story. There's no choice. There's no great decision of mine. It's not a brainwave to do that. It's like, what else are you going to tell? What this? He starts hating humans. Then you're going to go nowhere. And also, it's part of the notion. It's like it's a big. It's it's. it's there are times when I'm in the show where I'm less optimistic. Carefully chosen times and a bit more cynical. But I was always kind of like I think again. I'm going to go back to the end of the world again. Strangely, but it's like the template for that is set when he steps out the TARDIS, and it's very much aimed at the child audience. That where he does that speech about this really does bug me that you're always being told the world's going to come to end. You're told the beef is going to kill you, or the global warming now is going to kill you, that the rain is going to kill you. The, the you know I think to be eight years old now must be a terrible thing. It's like it's all you ever hear is it's all going to come to an end. Actually, as I get older, I also realise that. That's what it's like growing up in the human race. That when I was young, it was nuclear missiles. Actually, you don't quite hear said so much now. And literally, I'm not saying I lived single-handedly through the Cuban Missile Crisis. When I was young, it was literally there will be a nuclear war and we will all die. And at eight, ten years old, that was kind of like a strange off-stage pressure over you that you don't need. Thank you very much. I don't think you need now. I don't think you need to be when you're eight. I don't think you need to be told that coffee's going to kill you. That certainly global warming is absolutely terrifying and our refusal to face it is insane. But I don't think you need to be told that every day as an eight-year-old. I think sometimes you want to turn on the telly and have fun. And I think Doctor Who's there to be fun. And more than just fun, Doctor Who can say, actually, we survive. We, the, the, you, we do live all the way forward to the year four billion and, and, and beyond that. And I think that's, that's good for children to hear. I think that, that's, it's, uh, it's good for them to have an optimism. I think it's vital for them to have an optimism. And so the show kept on doing that. So therefore, you're creating a man who's got to love humans you know in the first episode you might call him stupid apes but of course he doesn't mean that it's like i think that's one of the, the tricky things about the doctor now being this living breathing three-dimensional character with a camera right in his face is that i think fans sometimes have a hard time we're used to kind of taking everything the doctor says at literal value at face value that he speaks the truth all the time and actually any living breathing character on screen has moods and different aspects and will mean one thing one day and one thing the next and i think so, and, you know, when this becomes the character who then loves or says he's in love or hates or, or goes through the, the whole gamut of emotions, it's hard as a, a more fact-processing fan to deal with that because there's no logic to it and there are contradictions within that. Anyway, I went off on a tangent then. So optimism, yes, and learning off us, I think it's vital. It's specifically for the child audience that I think it's... That, what's the point otherwise? You've got to say... Wicked out there. It's the kind of story I never did. It's it's funny watching Enemy of the World just released because I love it. I love the fact it's 2018. I love this age. Two minute, two hours by rocket to Europe. And it's that, <laughs> I love the fact. I love the fact you have a villain Mexican Hungarian. That's never been done before, has it? And um, both the women. It's Astrid Ferrier and Faria. Yeah. The, the two women kind of have the same name. Yes. Slightly strangely. Yes. It's not not the same, but it's like. You'd make names. That would get a rewrite. Yeah, it would get a rewrite, wouldn't it? And I, she's great, isn't she, Fariah? They're all brilliant. Yeah. Um, but the, I love that. I love that story because I love the I love the skyscrapers and I love the internationalness of it and the the James Bond kind of side to it. The kind of story I always never did and that someone would always pipe up and do is the disaster story, the catastrophe future story, where the TARDIS lands and there's a devastated Earth. 
And actually, I think you tell a brilliant story about a climate-changed Earth. You could, tra you could traumatise an entire generation of children and make them grow up to solve the problem. Maybe there's very good work to be done with Doctor Who, sort of saying, the Earth is in trouble, we're really, really going to ruin this planet. And yet, I used to sit there thinking, that's not what I'm here to do on a Saturday night, thank you. They're, I think they, they don't actually need Doctor Who to point them towards fighting climate change or something like that. They, they know that, they live with it, they talk about it in the yard, they know about it, they're, they're more savvy than adults are. That. They don't need Doctor Who to sort of say, actually, your future is ruined. Ruined. They don't need it, so... The only story I'd never do. Do you like Marmite? Yes. Because what story are we talking about? Oh, I went to fear her. Hooray! Yeah, Is it? Oh, no. Love oh, Love and Monsters! Oh, well, that's just lovely. Uh, All the way through. So is fear her. Uh, oh. I, I love Love and Monsters. Hooray. I, love and Mo I have Mr Blue Sky as the end music to Moss I wrote oh. Moss and my Doctor Who's Garth to Mr Yellow. Blue Sky, generally. Um, and I think there's a vibe in that story. It's... A, it's you know, you're, it is a celebration of Doctor Who fans mm, in a way. Yes, it's not. and a very absolutely interest. I love the fact that when Doctor Who magazine previewed it, they put starring Mark Warren, Peter Cave, and put David Tennant. Oh, did they? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Oh, brilliant! Uh, it's a shame we couldn't do that, but I guess contracts yes. wouldn't let you do that. I bet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it should have Mark Warren in the opening title. <laughs> yeah. it should have been. That'd be good. If I thought of that, we would have done it. David wouldn't have minded. <laughs> that was, uh, and that was. I mean, that was a coup. You've got Mark Warren. You've got Peter Cave. You've got a lovely, yes. lovely cast. Um, but a story um, that that has that some people really can you can you see why I can it's I I'm not so much yes it's I remember I went to the Edinburgh Festival that year and some woman gave me the phone and there was a like ten year old son on the phone going I like Doctor Who but it was rubbish last week <laughs> <laughs> no, she went <laughs> she went Andrew stop it <laughs> that was and I sort of thought and actually that was the only time I don't care if grown up fans don't like it. it was the only time I thought oh dear that's a shame if a, if a ten year old boy is going I didn't like that never mind but look we knew obviously we knew the risks we were taking with that episode we knew equally that we were heading towards a Dalek Cyberman war it's kind of like it's kind of like how confident we were getting by that stage not confident but actually confident enough to risk doing the opposite and throwing the audience away with it except you know this gets overstated it's like you know, with Doctor Who being like the most studied programme in the world, it's like sometimes the study is too close. It's like, no one was really surprised by that. We've all, I didn't invent that form of television. I didn't invent that first person narrative. I didn't invent the camcorder story. I didn't invent, you know, there's been Star Trek Lower Decks. There's been that, that story of taking the hero slightly off stage and telling yeah. it from someone else's point of view. Rose and Gilbert. Rose and We can yeah. go all the way back to like Pope and Dryden would do that sort of stuff. You know, that's, 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 it's an ancient form of storytelling to look at the side and then say, I'm trying to work out where Pope did that now. But, but um, it's, it, I didn't invent that. And it's like, and anyone who's genre savvy knows that, you know, where you do learn stuff off Buffy's and stuff like that, of course you do these type of episodes. You did invent somebody having a love life with a head in a pavement. So. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> love life, that, it says. Yes, that, so that is... Are you unrepentant about that? That is what I, I quite often see on the internet of, you know, you know the sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that, there's yes, that, there's yes, that, yes, that's yes. wrong. Yes, well, I think, they, I think people get frightened about sexual references. It's barely a sexual reference. It's a love life. It could mean a kiss. Any child is going to interpret that as a kiss, and um, and and she's obviously an equal partner in that. Oh, just more for a second. It's funny. It's slightly ribald. It's true. They love each other. They love each other. A whole episode has actually been their love story, and they end up happy together. You going to fight that? <laughs> oh, there's part of me that wishes she wasn't ahead in a slab, and that he somehow managed to. I so know. You won't, you won't let you won't let people 
you won't let the world always be pretty. No, 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 because I think... Because it no. hurts me, that bone. I don't yes. like The Head in the Slab, but I don't think it's that I don't like it as a piece of writing. Hmm. I don't like it because I don't you like the to... fact that Ursula's a head in a slab. You want the sonic screwdriver to save her, and it's like, sometimes you just can't. And, and you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a disability metaphor, or a gay metaphor, or whatever. It's like, sometimes it's not going to be the love that you wanted, but who's going to say, I love those people lining up to criticise it. It's like, oh, right, you've got a list of you. You've got a list of what is acceptable. Those people have a list of who can be kissed and why. Great, let's hear the list. Let's look uh, at your life. That's not going to be so good, is it? It's like, come on. It's a marvellous moment. Hooray for Ursula. It's not the life they want. Does anyone? Toby, have you? Who's got the life that they want for long? Not many people. But you make the best of it. Like watching Doctor Who, you have to sit through <laughs> revelations that he's half-human. And you live with it. You put up with what you've got. And actually, you make something wonderful out of it. Well, I'm a hands-up uh, 10 out of 10 Mother Monsters person. Oh, I love it. And it's I funny because I know it's not like that. On the production team, it was a very special episode. We all loved that episode. We had a big read-through for that and like, invited people along. It's really... We love it. It's funny for a show with a flexible format to how resistant we sometimes are. The well, I know. I d I'm with that. I'm equally with that 10-year-old boy thinking if you could have had Mother Monsters or the Doctor being chased by some ice warriors, you'd probably go for the Doctor being chased by some ice warriors. That's fair enough. But I do also think that kid was a little Doctor Who fan on the phone, and I think you'll watch that again when you're 18. And I think part of you will go, oh, there was a joke there, and burst out laughing. And then maybe when you're 21, you go, actually, they love each other. And if you carry on hating it, then actually, I think it's something a little bit sour in you. It's like, come on, Lucy, it's a lovely, warm clever, intelligent and optimistic piece of television there. If you're going to keep hating it, have a look at yourself. Come on. So, television just keeps rolling on and on and on. A good piece of television that just keeps living. Mm. And you did mention Fear Her. I know, I thought you were going to be rude to that. Poor Chloe Webber and oh, her Isolus. I, I, I love I the that. idea of, a, of an alien that, that that's um, it's lonely. That's loneliness manifests itself in a it way that, that is name. inimicable to us. I think that's an interesting yes. invasion dynamic. It should have know. looked at its own name, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you look back, it's like, it's like a Ridius, isn't it? Yeah. This planet's very dry. <laughs> what was it called when you had oceans? <laughs> <laughs> Wet us. <laughs> no, I looked, you know, the bit in that with Chloe Webber's drawing the whole world, I think it's terrific. And that father coming out of the. Um, of the, the, the closet. I remember a fascinating conversation with that because I was like going. When, uh, yeah, just you know, sorry about the nature of violent fathers and how much um, she would recreate him. I don't want to give away someone's past with a violent father. That's why I'm being slightly, uh, I'm just stopping my own sentence in my tracks. It wasn't me. <laughs> but, um, you know, how true that was, that it's the monster in the closet that actually, mm -hmm. you know, it looks kind of a metaphorical. Like we've gone, aha, she sees an abusive father as an evil as an evil doctor who monster in a, in a cupboard. And I remember talking to someone about how true that was. Actually, that's not clever TV metaphor. That's literally what you see. To her, her father had been a monster, in, literally in a cupboard, and, and the terror of that. It's very real. And telling that in, in a bit of tea time entertainment. Marvellous. In which the doctor sticks his fingers in the jar of lips. <laughs> he does fingers on lips. I love that. So. And I love that because it's like you bring in Matthew Graham. And I loved it because it's like... I know people always think I have too heavy, heavy a hand in scripts sometimes. And I, there are times I just didn't because I love the fact that he writes the doctor and Rose in a way I'd never write them. He writes them as a de de detective pair. They write the TARDIS is their police station. 
They let you go through the whole story as detectives, saying, oh, here's a problem, right, I'm going to interview everyone. Fingers on lips, says the doctor. And he, and he calls on houses and interviews them. Rose is very much his assistant. And they go back to the TARDIS to analyse things, like going back to the CSI forensics lab. And I love that. It's a completely different feel to any other Doctor Who story. And you kind of don't notice. Doctor Who just absorbs changes like that. That's why I remember I was having conversations in the office, sort of saying, should we ask Matthew to change it to relax the police investigation side of it and to make it more what we consider to be Doctor Who. And I remember sitting there going, no, it's, uh, th that's the joy of it. It's written completely differently. It's like Detective Doctor this week. Brilliant. Love it. Off you go. I'll tell you what I love. What? I love the fact that it has Hugh Edwards saying, not you too, Bob. <laughs> Bob! Not you too, Bob! Eros went and did that with two Welshmen together. <laughs> laughing. Bob, one of the great unseen Doctor Who characters. Literally unseen. Yeah. <laughs> He's vanished. How disappointing were the Olympics when that didn't happen. Oh, yeah, because, of course, you, you were writing the future and we're now in the past. Isn't that funny? Past. Isn't that funny? Extraordinary. And again, the biggest problems in that were, because the Olympics hadn't arrived in Britain then, and now they've been and gone. We know how litigious... And and diligent, the Olympic Committee is guarding its own logos. You know, you can't your a local cafe can't call its breakfast the Olympic breakfast. You can't use those five circles. So there we were in two thousand six, happily walking in, going right Olympic logos all over the place. And there was a lot of trouble getting that done. It was that we really? kind of we kind of just had to march on and do it and hope that they wouldn't sue. I think because they're you, you remember from last year how protective they are of that. We had no idea. So that was. I'm halfway through thinking, oh my God, we're not going to be. What? Do, how do we rewrite this? The Commonwealth Games are going on nearby. That's just not going to work, is it? No one cares. We, so we just soldiered on in the end. Well, and we'll soldier on because you've given us, I think, your army uh, uh, first team today, and because it was all in one block, and we must march bravely on because we're not to get through. I know. Uh, Poor uh, faithful listener. Yeah, well. Uh, reaching uh, his limit with Paul me. Faithful you. <laughs> um, so you've. Poor old Billy Piper's gone in the most moving exit uh, ever. You killed TV host Alistair Appleton playing himself. Isn't that a first? I, that you get somebody to play themselves and kill them. And yet there he is on Escape to the Country. Still yeah. there. I had hoped to kill him <laughs> and keep the body for myself. <laughs> Let's move on quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Bless him. He was lovely, apparently. He absolutely loved coming along to do that. Phil did that. He was They're brilliant. not ghosts, they're metal. He dies. Yeah. <laughs> they're metal men. And so we get... Uh, oh, Doctor Who spent tracing Catherine Hepburn in uh, David Tennant and Catherine That's Day, exactly what it is, yes. Charging yes, yes, about the in The Runaway Bride, the difficult uh, second Christmas special, because, because, of course, the, the first Christmas special is the Doctor Who Christmas special. Yes. And then you have to do another one. Yes. So let's... After a, laugh. a very sad, <laughs> after a very tear-jerking, moving mm. bells and whistles. Yeah, we went through. I remember there was a lot of fuss there tonight. Of like people on the sixth floor of the BBC, sort of saying, "Oh, why don't we approach? Why don't we approach Helen Bonham Carter? Why don't we approach Kate Winslet? Maybe they want to do a Doctor Who Christmas special." And I remember sitting there going, "No, Catherine Tate. That's the one. That's the one." to be in that bridal dress. There's no-one else. And, and it's not because she's funny. I, I think she's such a fine actress. I used to watch that sketch of us amazed at her control of, of, of scripts, of texts, and stuff like that. Brilliant. Just, and who would have thought where that would lead in the end? Isn't it funny? Yes. The little, sure. You know, it was a one-off. And I thought, well, right. I knew, by that stage, you knew how funny David was a comedy. It's like, let's have... You know, they have the knockabout comedy of that, them trying to hail a taxi in the street. 
It's, yeah, it's my favourite part of the episode is the is the banter and the chase. The TARDIS going down the motorway. Ah. Santa's a robot and all of that. Santa's <laughs> a robot. <laughs> Love that chase. And the editor, John Richards, edited that. I think he did that motorway chase in one edit. You know, we came. I, I thought we'd have months on this. Oh, we kind of came into the edit, me ready with a great big pencil and, and paper, ready to write a million notes. There it was. John Richards. I think, I hope that's his name. Yes, I'm sure it is. Yes, yes, yes. I'll check that when I go home and then we can leave that bit out if it's yeah. all. Well, all. Do you know what? All the editors of Doctor Who are unsung heroes. We never talk about them. And, and then Will Oswald does a lot of Doctor Who's. He edited Utopia. And um, he loved it so much. I love the editors. He loved it so much. He had to go to Romania to work on Robin Hood. And he took a DVD of Utopia with him and played it to himself on the Saturday night that it was transmitted <laughs> because he loved Utopia that much. And, you, you know, when, I, when we say people on the show love it and love working on it, that's how much. The editor of Utopia is the most stunning edit. All those plots into cutting there. Mad in the reveal of the master. It's a classy, classy edit. If you look at Will's name, he's done hundreds of our episodes. And um, he took it to Romania and sat and watched it. And then he knows what I've often. Uh, lovely. Brilliant. My thanks to Russell. His charity is the Terence Higgins Trust who've actually been in touch to say thank you uh, for the spike in donations that they had when previous uh, Russell interviews took place. So thanks to you all for your generosity. Um, but particular thanks, of course, to Russell, because it was his generosity of time that has given you something that you've clearly enjoyed. So hooray for everybody. Um, they are at www.tht .org.uk www.tht.org.uk uh, If you could make a donation uh, that would be very much appreciated um, So that's number 99 Who have I interviewed for 100? Well, I'm obviously not going to tell you but for the first time ever we're having a Who's Round Christmas special So keep them peeled on Christmas Day when I will reveal if by the end of December 2013, I managed to get an anecdote from the one story that had been eluding me. As we counted down, I just about got past the awakening, onto the awakening, Frontios and Resurrection of the Daleks. That, that chronological group all tucked together. I slowly chipped away at those. Another, another chronological bump of... Uh, uh, the Leisure Hive and the Horns of Naimon I did uh, with two people in the same building. Uh, just by coincidence, they were lunching together when I'd arranged to interview one of them, so I knocked another off. Frontios, ah, oh, I had somebody who'd agreed to do it, who then had to cancel at the last minute. So I had to rustle up somebody I'd never met from nowhere with about six days to go for Christmas. Oh, it was all terribly exciting. Uh, but you'll hear about that in the future, because for this Christmas, we're just going to... Uh, yeah, we're just going to see what happened at the very end of the process when I had one story left to cover uh, and who it was I got. So that's a uh, Christmas special in the next Who's Round, which will be on the 25th of December. Oh, and also we've thrown in uh, an extra interview, which is 45 seconds long, that gives us a quick anecdote from the forthcoming Christmas special last Christmas. Don't say I don't do anything for you. Um, so, OK, see you at number 100. Happy Christmas, everybody, and uh, God bless us.
Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, The Fourth Doctor Adventures. Mannering Cavisham was, without doubt, the greatest lanternist of the Golden Age. He was also the only supernaturalist who was never exposed as a fraud or a trickster. Cavisham conjured forth the demon he claimed had been pursuing him for years. Not a trick, but an actual demon. Hello. I bet you're not expecting us. Are you members of the Cavisham Society? He is a shaman. A showman. A lanternist, I'd say, from this rather splendid equipment. Mr. Holman is the most respected and admired lanternist in the business. What the devil was that? The sound of death. Are you sure? What could have done this? Doctor, wait and listen. The glass is screaming. Doctor Who, the darkness of glass. Oh, I'm afraid you're rather stuck with us. Big finish. We love stories. <laughs>